Now, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to it. I know it's uh, difficult in this building without, we don't have Bibles, but uh, if you've got it on a phone, uh, I will refer to verses which will come up on the screen. But uh, I normally like to start with a story or two before. So uh, when I was moving down from York to Chipping Norton, there were a few sort of jokes about, oh, you're going to join the Chipping Norton set, are you? And uh, this sort of thing. And um, I did bump into David Cameron the other day outside the Sainsbury's in Chipping Norton, but my wife said, you're not to talk to him, Roger. So I I just smiled at him, and he obviously thought that I knew him because he smiled back and said hello. So I heard this story, I'm not sure if it's true, of a a little boy, it's a delightful story, of a little boy who really, really wanted 100 pounds. So he, he prayed for a whole week for 100 pounds, and absolutely nothing happened. So he decided to write a letter to God uh, uh, to ask him for £100. So he wrote this letter and he addressed it to God, UK Limited. And uh, he popped popped the letter in the letterbox and um, the post office weren't quite sure what to do with it. So they decided to send it to the Prime Minister. (laughs) Anyway, the Prime Minister was very touched by the little boy's uh, request. And uh, so he instructed his private secretary to send the boy a five-pound note instead, which he thought that the little boy would be delighted with. Anyway, the boy received the five pounds and was delighted with it, so he sat down to write a letter to God to thank him. Dear God, he said, thank you very much for the money that you sent me. I noticed for some reason that the letter was redirected through 10 Downing Street And as usual, they took most of it. (laughs) So, now, um, what I want to do uh, this morning is focus with you on this. It's a very well-known story about Moses and the call that Moses gives, uh, that, that, that Moses receives from God to go back. He's in Midian. He's looking after uh, his father-in-law's sheep. And he's told by God to go back to Egypt and to lead the children of Israel who are enslaved. You all, I hope all of you know this. He's to lead them from slavery uh, on a journey through to freedom, which is uh, going to be the promised land. So that's the call that God gives Moses. And it actually comes in the early chapters of Exodus. And uh, actually, when you and I come to Christ, when we turn to Christ, God calls us. He doesn't call us to do quite the same sort of work that Moses did. It's not on the same scale. But he does call us to be involved with him in the work of leading people from slavery to freedom. That's what salvation is. Salvation as you know, you know this, is freedom. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, he sets them free. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And he wants us, as his followers, as his disciples, to be involved with him in this work. Only he does it. We can't do it. We can't set anyone free. But he wants us to be involved with him in this task of leading people from slavery 
into freedom. And very soon after I became a Christian in London, I got involved in this task. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult. You'd think it would be easy, but it's not. It's very difficult indeed. And it's very discouraging a lot of the time. Now, the interesting thing is that when God called Moses to do this, Moses came up with various excuses as to why God couldn't possibly want him to do this work. And as I've studied this passage, and it's a passage that I love very much, it's one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament, a lot of the excuses that Moses came up with are mirrored in us. So let's have a look at the excuses uh, one by one. And at the end, I'm going to, there's going to be an opportunity for us to respond to Jesus Christ in whatever way is right for us. So I just want to put that up. Uh, uh, so there will be a chance at the end. So let's have a look at verse 1. And Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? So what was excuse number one? Excuse number one is... They will never believe me. Now, before we're we're quick to judge Moses, I've got a lot of sympathy for him. Haven't you had that experience where you've talked to somebody about Jesus Christ and you know that while you're talking to them, you could just tell by their face that they don't believe a word of what you're saying? I've had that experience more times than I can imagine. Even this week, actually, I've had that experience. So they'll never believe me. They'll never believe me when I go back to Egypt and say, God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me and he's told me to lead you from slavery. We're going to go to a promised land. Now, I want you to notice how God answers Moses' first excuse. What God does is he gives Moses three authenticating signs to show Moses and the people that he was with him. Now, this is where it would be good if you had your Bible open in front of you. You could get it printed. You could get the copy printed so you could all have a look at it. So let's have a look at what God says to him. What's the first sign that he gives him? What does Moses have in his hand? A staff. He had a shepherd's crook in his hand. And what does God say to Moses? Throw the staff on the ground. So Moses throws the crook on the ground. And what happens to the crook? It becomes a snake. Not any snake, a poisonous snake. They lived under the sand in the Sinai. They still do. And then what does God say to Moses? Pick the snake, not the crook, pick the snake up by the tail, and Moses does what God says. And what happens to the snake? It becomes a crook in his hand. Now, can I just say at this point, I am absolutely sure that it was a real snake. There are some commentaries, I've read lots of commentaries on Exodus, there are some commentaries who say that this was a spiritual metaphor. Now, how is Moses going to lead over two 
million people. And if you find two million a difficult number to think of, if you lined all the Israelites that came out of Egypt in a long line, five abreast, do you know how long the column would have been? 110 miles long. That is how, never mind all the cattle and the sheep and the camels and the donkeys, that's how many people came out from one of the most cruel, highly fortified regimes, a bit like North Korea, except much worse. Can you imagine leading two million people with a spiritual metaphor in your hand? I mean, it just does not make sense, does it? So I'm sure it actually happened. So that was sign number one. Now, what was sign number two? He's to, <coughs> to get his hand, and what does he do? Puts his hand in his cloak, and it's covered in, he pulls it out, it's covered in leprosy, which meant he was going to die. And then what does God say? Put your hand back into your cloak, which he does, and he pulls it out, and his hand is restored. That comes in the text. So in other words, God would show Moses and the people that he had power over death. And then he says, if they still don't believe you, Moses, what's he got to do? He's got to take some water from the, it's there in the text, water from the Nile, and he's to pour the water from the Nile onto the ground and it would become blood in which no life could live and The Nile, if you remember, was one of the gods to the Egyptians. And God would, the God of Abraham and Isaac and the real God would show Moses and the people that he was the one true God. Now, does that convince Moses? No. Would that convince you to go and do a job like that? I don't know that it would convince me. So we come to... Excuse number two, and the excuse number two comes in verses 10 and 11, if you'd like to look at it. So Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, in the, I don't know Hebrew, but I know where to look it up. In the Hebrew... It's a very interesting phrase, expression. It means that he had a stutter. Moses had a stutter or a stammer. Now, I don't know whether you know anybody with a stutter. I I have got a few friends who have a stutter. And do you know what people with a stutter most dread? They dread speaking in public to a crowd of people. That strikes absolute terror into them. So can you imagine leading two million people with a stutter? Can you imagine the sheer terror that that would lead to? So Moses says, his second excuse, and it's a very good excuse, is, Lord, I can't do this because I'm no good at public speaking. And notice how God answers him. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf? Is it not I? And then he says, Now go, I will help you to speak, and I will teach you 
what to say. So don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll show you what to say, and, I, 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 and I'll be with you. So that was excuse number two. I'm no good at public speaking. Now, does that convince Moses? No. So he, we come back to the third excuse, and that's in verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. In other words, please don't ask me to do this. Please ask somebody else to do it. And then if you look at the text, look at verse 14, then the Lord's anger burnt against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. Anyway, uh, Moses eventually, reluctantly gives in. He goes back to his father-in-law and uh, he sets off uh, with his wife and uh, his sons on a donkey and they go to Egypt. Now, I first had to preach on this as a young curate. I was about 26 and I was working at All Souls Langer Place. I was actually the curate evangelist there. And uh, because I was a curate, I didn't have to preach very often. So it was, I think that was to, for, their, for their benefit. They didn't want the young curate doing too much. And also it's good for me because it was quite terrifying. Actually, it wasn't terrifying that there were over a thousand people in front of you. The most terrifying thing was that John Stott was sitting behind you. <laughs> and uh, I always used to check the rotor to see where John Stott was because he was usually somewhere in the world, India or... Africa or America, because he preached all over the world, and often he wasn't at all souls. And to my horror, I discovered that this particular Sunday, when I was down to preach on Exodus 4, he was going to be there, which was the worst thing that I could imagine. Now, I learned early on in my life as a curate that we used to have a Saturday as our day off. We had two little boys. This is coming off, I think. Two little boys. And I discovered that if I didn't have the sermon in the bag by Friday afternoon, I had a miserable Saturday. And I had read every single commentary I could find on Exodus 4, and I still had no sermon. And so I had a very miserable day off. And then on Saturday night, I went to my study. And I remember, and I, we live literally below the GP, you know, the GPO tower. So out of our little window, we had a tiny little flat. I could see the GPO, the top of the GPO tower from my, our flat. And I remember saying to the Lord this particular Saturday night, Lord, I've got to preach tomorrow on Exodus 4. And I've got no message for the people and also, Lord, John Stott's going to be there. And I, I'm absolutely terrified. Please, please, could you give me a message? I don't know if you, those of you who preach will know that feeling. So I went back to the text again to look at it again for the whatever, however many times I looked at it. And, and I wonder if you were preaching on Exodus 4, what you would say. Now, I'm going to tell you what I said. Because I felt God inspired me. And you can tell me afterwards whether he did. I went back, and as I looked at it, I noticed something what, which I thought was very important and very interesting in the text. So if you could put it up, put up verse 14. Now, what does the text say? Then the Lord's anger 
burnt against Moses. Now that caught my eye and I thought this is really important because the other excuses that Moses made did not make God angry. And actually, I knew that God, is, God does not get angry easily. He's not like us. He's actually, he's very patient, he's very kind, he's abounding in love, and he's slow to anger. So if something makes God angry, that is, the writer's saying something very important. You need to look at this, he's saying. Something's going on between God and Moses, which actually is really, really serious. So I went back to the the text, and I looked at it again, and the question I asked was, what were the real excuses that Moses was making? If you like, the excuses behind the excuses, and this is what I felt was happening. So let's go back to verse 1. And let's look at the excuses again, but with a little bit more depth. Now, the first excuse was, they will never believe me. Now, what was the real excuse? Look back, with, if you've got your Bible. No, you haven't. Look at chapter 3 and verse 18. What does God say? What has God said? Can you get that up? No, it doesn't matter. I'll read it out. The elders of Israel will listen to you. I'll just say that again. The elders of Israel will listen to you. And then what does Moses say? What if they do not believe me or listen to me? So what was the real excuse? The real excuse, the real problem that Moses... And this is a problem that we all struggle with in this room. The real problem was unbelief. He didn't believe what God had actually said. Now, before you criticise Moses, before I criticise Moses, we all do that. Because God says things again and again in his word, and I don't believe him. I mean, who here does not worry about the future? I'd be very interested to meet anyone in this church who does not worry about the future. Now, there may be some very holy people here. I'm sure there are, because you're Baptist, you'll be very holy. Uh, in an Anglican church, you wouldn't find many. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus actually says, we're not to worry about tomorrow, doesn't he? He says, let today's own trouble be sufficient for the day. So we all struggle with unbelief. So we struggle to believe often that God is there. We struggle to believe that he is active. We struggle to believe that he loves us. We struggle to believe that he can forgive us. We struggle to believe that he's powerful. We struggle to believe that Jesus Christ can live in us by his Holy Spirit And we struggle to believe. I remember this was a huge struggle for me when I was thinking of becoming a Christian. I struggled to believe that I would actually be able to keep it up as a Christian. I really did not think, because I knew what I was like as a person, I really didn't think I'd last longer than about a month. 
because that's the sort of person I am. I try something and then I give it up and I try something like that. Now, 48 years later, I'm still, still going. Now, that's not because I'm a great Christian, because I'm not, but God is a great God. And when he comes to a person, he gives them the power to keep going and to, to carry on living. And we struggle to believe that God could use us to help our family and our friends and our neighbours come to Christ. Now, what I want you to notice is how God answers the problem of unbelief. The first thing I want you to notice is that it does not make God angry. He's not, ang- he's not angered by Moses' unbelief. He understands. He understands And so what does he do? He gets Moses to do something. And the greatest antidote to unbelief, and this is really important, is obedience. If you're struggling to believe in God, which we all do, the greatest answer to unbelief is obedience. Obey him. So what does God say to Moses? What have you got in your hand? A crook. What does he say to Moses? Throw it on the ground. Now, he does that. He throws the crook on the ground. And then what does God say? Pick the snake up by the tail. Now, that is a bit more difficult, isn't it? But the key thing is that Moses does what God tells him to do. So Moses obeys God, and he picks the snake up by the tail, and it becomes a crook again. Put your hand in your cloak. He obeys God, pull it out, covered in leprosy. That must have been absolutely horrific. Now put your hand back in. He does, he obeys God, and his hand is healed. Now, if you think about it, within a few months of that, Moses was being asked to hold that crook up over the reds or the reed sea, because he had Pharaoh and his armies coming to massacre them all. And what did God say? Put, stop complaining. It's all there in the text. Hold your crook out on the thing and then get walking. Do you remember? And as, they, as he obeys God and they start walking, well, you know the story, the Red Sea parts and they walk through. So in other words... Moses was learning early on that the best way to move forward in faith is to obey God. Now, can I say to you, brothers and sisters, if you struggle with unbelief, and I do all the time, the best antidote to it is obedience. So when God tells you to do something, do it. And it might be something very small. And if you obey him, he'll ask you to do something a little bit more difficult. Because he moves you on in faith. That's the way faith works. So that's excuse number one. Now, excuse number two. What was the real excuse? I'm no good at public speaking. The real excuse, I want to suggest, was that he felt inadequate. I am inadequate to do this work that you're calling me to do. Now, the interesting thing is, if you go through the Acts of the Apostles, you will find that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen 
describes Moses as a man who was mighty in word and in deed, in action. It's there in Acts 7. Josephus says that Moses was the greatest preacher in Israel. When I was a young man in London, one of the best preachers in England was an Anglican vicar who had a stutter. He had a stammer. And God used him all over England very powerfully. And I've I, I got to tell you something. I have learned over the years that God is most powerful in your area of weakness, not in your area of strength. It's an extraordinary paradox. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He had this thorn in the flesh. Do you remember? And three times he asked God to remove it, and God said what to him? No, I'm not going to, Paul, because my grace is made sufficient in your weakness. And I've discovered that when we are very weak in an area, and we all... We all struggle with weakness in different areas of our lives. If you will give that weakness to God, he can actually turn it into a great strength. And I found that. I found that again and again and again in my life and my ministry. I mean, so often I go to situations where I feel totally, totally weak. So I have this title. I'm called the Archbishop's Evangelist to the North. I mean... What a ridiculous, ridiculous thing to be called. And so, you know, we go into situations which are, you know, completely beyond us. We can't do, you know, I mean, it's like going to fight the Philistines. We were often thrown into fighting. There are lots of Goliaths around. And I've discovered that again and again, we go in very weak. And what does God do? He does the most extraordinary things. In fact, the weaker we feel which is not a nice feeling. It's not nice to feel weak. It's much better to feel strong. But God's strength is always most powerful when we're weak. So I wonder if there's someone here who God is calling to do something and you feel very weak, very inadequate. Well, I want to say to you, sisters and brothers, that's okay. That doesn't make God angry. He doesn't get angry with your weakness. He understands all about it. All you've got to do is give it to him. And then thirdly and finally, what was the third excuse which actually did make God angry? It was when he said, verse 13, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. In other words, please don't ask me to do this. Please send someone else. And it was that attitude which actually made God angry. That's pretty profound, isn't it? So God, God doesn't actually need your ability. God can do anything. But he does want your availability. God can do anything he wants because he's God. But he's looking for people, weak, inadequate, unbelieving people like you and me, who will say to him, Lord, I'm available to you. Will you use me in whatever way you want to? That's what he's looking for. 
So I'm going to just ask you to bow your heads and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Now, there might be someone here who's not yet come to Jesus Christ. And you've been coming here and you're interested. Maybe you've got a friend or a family member who's made an impression on you, but you've not yet come to Christ and you're worried You're not sure whether you really believe it, and you're also not sure whether actually you could live as a Christian. And I want to say to you, if you're that sort of person, you're just the sort of person God is looking for today. And you can come to him. You can come to him. You can come to him right now as I'm praying with an open hand and an open heart and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I need your help, I'm inadequate, I don't believe you at times, but I want to follow you. Will you take me as I am? And if you can pray that prayer, just as I've echoed it now, in your heart, come and see me afterwards. I've got a a little booklet which I'd love to give you. Now, there might be someone else here who's a Christian. You've been following Christ for some time, but your Christian life lacks power. And it's all become a bit dry, a bit of a duty. I'm doing it because I feel I should, but you've lost the joy of the Lord. And I want to say to you, and I know this experience myself, I've been in that place many times. Uh, um, so I know, I know what it's like. Uh, you can feel that you're in a dry and weary land and God seems distant. Even though I come to church and even though I try to read my Bible and to pray, I'm really struggling. And I want to say to you, God loves you. He understands. And his power... The power of the Holy Spirit is available to you. And all you've got to do, is, again, is as you came to him initially in faith and you admitted your need, that's all you've got to do. You've just got to say, Lord, I need you again. Please, will you come and fill me with your Holy Spirit? And I've got a, another little booklet with me which... Uh, not for, not for people who want to start the Christian life, but for those who want to keep going. It's about the Holy Spirit. So you can ask me for one of those, and I'll get, gladly give you one. And then the third uh, group of people, which I guess is all of us here today, I want to just talk to. It, are, I'm going to come back. Um, Phil and Ed have kindly asked me to come back in about five or six weeks' time. And I'm going to preach um, a, a guess, a, a, an evangelistic talk where people can hear about Christ and get, I'll give them a chance to respond to Christ. But they need to come. And the only thing that will get them here is if someone like you or me invites them. They won't come any other way. They don't come magically. And that requires courage. Uh, to ask God to lead us to people. We can't make anybody come, but we can invite them. 
And that's what God calls us to do. And I, so I want to challenge you all. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in six or seven weeks this room was completely full with people? And that would mean each one bringing one person. Now, that sounds easy, but it's actually very difficult to bring someone. But we can invite them. So I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you will help us to be involved with you in this work of mission and give us all the courage and boldness that we need from the Holy Spirit. Guide us to people who could come and help us to bring them along. And if you invite them and they don't come, that's okay. You come anyway. But don't come and smile at me if you haven't invited somebody. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And thank you just as you worked in Moses' life and made him into a great leader despite his weakness. You can do the same in us. Amen.